happy Reformation Sunday to you, dear saints. What is Reformation Day? What is Reformation Sunday? What is it significant for? Why is it worthy of celebration? In the year of 1517, on October 31st, Martin Luther took up his hammer and nailed his 95 theses on the chapel door at Wittenberg. One of Luther's 95 theses simply declared, quote, The church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Professor Stephen Nichols recently and rightly said, quote, That alone is the meaning of Reformation Day. The church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church had lost sight of the gospel because it had long ago papered over the pages of God's word with layer upon layer of tradition. Mere tradition often brings about systems of works of earning your way back to God. It was true of the Pharisees. It was true of medieval Roman Catholicism. Didn't Christ himself say, quote, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Reformation Day celebrates the joyful beauty of the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ. What is Reformation Day? It was the day that began the Protestant Reformation. It was a day that led to Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and many other reformers helping the church find its way back to God's word as the only supreme authority for faith and life and leading the church back to the glorious doctrines of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It kindled the fires of missionary endeavors. It led to hymn writing and congregational singing. It led to the centrality of the sermon and preaching for the people of God. It is the celebration of a theological, ecclesiastical, and cultural transformation. So we celebrate Reformation Day. This day reminds us to be thankful for our past and to the monk who turned reformer. What's more, this day reminds us of our duty, our obligation to keep the light of the gospel at the center of all we do. End quote. That was Dr. Nichols there. Was Reformation something that was needed only in the medieval Roman Catholic Church? That's the one issue I would take with Dr. Nichols' statement. All too often, we think of Reformation Day as being a celebration of some historic event, some historic theological battle. Hear me, saints. The Roman Catholic Church has not been reformed. There are 1.3 billion Roman Catholics who yet need to be reformed, who yet need to come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Reformation is not over. It was begun in 1517, with a hammer and a nail and 95 theses. But it has not been finished. And far too many saints, far too many evangelicals, far too many even in the Reformed camp have laid down the hammer. Not just Luther's hammer, but the hammer of God's Word. Is not my word a fire, says the Lord, and a hammer? They've laid down the hammer and the fire of God's Word that would burn down and crush the heresies of Rome that are enslaving and damning over a billion souls. They have cried, peace, peace, where there can be no peace, thinking it's simply something of the medieval Roman Catholic Church and not 
a need for reformation in our current hour. A few years ago, in 2017, it was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. 500 years since Martin Luther took up hammer and nail. And yet the greater number of sermons preached on the popular level by men who are accepted as reformed, who are accepted as solid biblical expositors and ministers of the gospel, the greater body of those sermons failed to lay the axe to the root of Rome. They failed to take the sword of the Spirit to Christ's great enemy. They failed to take that fire and hammer directly to Rome. They spoke in historic context. They spoke in high and lofty theological context, but they didn't speak directly of the church of Rome today being Antichrist. And they did not call on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation for a revival in the evangelical Reformed church to stand up and fight a good fight in our day for those precious souls perishing under those abominable doctrines. Heresy upon heresy upon heresy upon heresy. Not just a wee error, not just a heresy here and there, as if that wouldn't be enough, but a great mountain of heresy is what makes up the church, the priesthood, and the doctrines of Rome. There seems to be a significant confusion today among many Reformed-ish folks as to what's being Reformed is all about. So here are a few vital Reformation Day reminders. And I say this with abounding love and a bit of a smile, but it must be said. Being Reformed is not actually about beards. It's not actually about micro-brew beer, tattoos, cursing, cigars, tumblers of whiskey, or being cool at all. That's not actually what being Reformed is about. Being Reformed is about more than a historical event or a doctrinal statement. Being Reformed is chiefly about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not really Reformed if you're not an actual gospel-declaring, defining, and defending Reformer. You're not really Reformed if you're not laboring to rescue the 1.3 billion Roman Catholics who are perishing under Catholicism's abominable Antichrist heresies. You're not really reformed if you have ecumenical hymn sings and prayer meetings with Roman Catholics when you should be calling them to repent of their false Christ and their false gospel. If you say Roman Catholics are brothers and sisters in Christ, you're not reformed at all. You're a counter-reformer. If you get an A-plus in Reformed eschatology and an F-minus in Reformed soteriology, you're not Reformed at all. You're not even a Christian. Reformed eschatology is the Reformed doctrine of end times. Reformed soteriology is the doctrine of the gospel, how sinners are saved. If you get an A-plus on Reformed end times doctrine and an F-minus on Reformed gospel, you perish in your sins. And your eschatology will perish with you. If that is you, here today or anywhere, you might hear this message. Repent, dear friend. Repent. Believe the gospel. Then call our Catholic friends to do the same. 
Semper Reformanda is the sixth point of this sermon on the five solas of the Reformation. And without point six, you're not a reformer. You might claim to be reformed, but you're not a reformer. And what does it mean to be reformed if you're not a reformer? The difference is the gospel. The reformer has a heart for the gospel. The reformer has a heart for perishing sinners. The reformed tends to have a heart for the high ivory tower and lofty theological discussion. And all too often in today's so-called reformed-ish world, the reformed are ready to give up the reformation. They're ready to give up the fight for the souls of over a billion Roman Catholic men and women who must repent of a false gospel, must repent of a false Christ, must repent of a false system of works righteousness, and believe upon the true Christ and the true gospel to be saved. It's commonly thought of child molestation is the greatest evil in the world, sex trafficking, or that abortion is the greatest evil in the world, the murder of 1.6 billion children in their mother's womb since 1980. Those are great evils, astounding, sickening evils. But as evil as they are, our theology teaches us, our Bible teaches us that there is hope for those children. There is hope for their eternal souls. The greatest evil on the planet is that which is antichrist that which is opposed to Christ and His gospel. The church of Rome is a far greater evil than abortion. The church of Rome is a far greater evil than sex trafficking. The church of Rome has damned billions of souls to eternity in hell and is damning them now as we speak this very morning as they call Christ out of heaven in their heresy by edict of priest pompous man standing before men calling Christ the Lord of glory out of heaven off of the seat where he has sat down because he finished his work. They have the audacity to call him out of heaven into that wafer and then to say that that wafer is Jesus manifest in their presence worthy of worship. To be eaten. Jesus manifest in the flesh worthy of worship to be eaten for justification of sin. A false Christ and a false gospel is being served up in every Roman Catholic church this very day and every day of the week. Every day of the week. Damning souls to hell as they have done for centuries. Well, that is a far greater evil than that which we commonly think of as the greatest evils in the earth. And yet we make peace with Rome and its doctrines. What the Bible would call doctrines of demons. Hear me, saints. I love Roman Catholics so much that I hate Roman Catholicism that's damning them. I love the Lord Jesus Christ so much that I hate all that is Antichrist because it is against Him. It blasphemes Him. It is opposed to Him and His Saving gospel. I'm not unbiased. And I'm not an unbiased preacher standing in the pulpit encouraging you to be milk toast, unbiased 
saints of God. We need to be utterly biased for Christ and His gospel. We need to be reformers today. Not reformed men and women who celebrate a historic reformation, but reformers today who celebrate the ongoing fight for Christ and His gospel, marching as to war against a real foe, Satan, who would destroy them. The first point, Scripture alone. Scripture alone, sola scriptura, is the formal principle of the Reformation. It is the foundation of the historic Reformation and the essential key to any present or future Reformation. The other Reformation truths all flow from this undiluted, uncorrupted source. Scripture alone defines truth. Without Scripture, we would not know God. We would not know Jesus. We would not know His gospel. In fact, we could not know anything without Scripture, not truly. At the outset of his Reformation campaign, when called to the imperial diet of worms to be tried for heresy, the Roman Catholic Church pressed Martin Luther to recant his teachings with full understanding that his life hung in the balance. His historic response is one of full and glorious sola scriptura conviction. He said this, quote, "...unless..." I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason. I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. That was Martin Luther's famous statement before the Diet of Worms, and it should have cost him his life. Indeed, they sought his life, but God in His gracious providence spared his life, for the Reformation was just getting started, and Martin Luther would be of much use to that end yet to come. And he had not yet married his beloved ex-nun, so the Lord had plans for him and her too. Fairly late in life, With the Reformation well underway, Luther, perhaps even more famously, boasted the formal Reformation principle and power of sola scriptura. Quote, Take me, for example, I opposed indulgences and all papists, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word, otherwise I did nothing. The word of God so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The Word did it all. Saints, faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. We are soldiers of Christ who wield the Word of God. As Jeremiah twenty three twenty eight says this, And he who has my Word... Let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I'm against the prophets, says the Lord, who steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Behold, I'm against the prophets, says the Lord, who use their tongues and say, he says... Behold, I'm against those who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, and tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and their recklessness. Yet I did not send them or command them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, says the Lord. We need true preachers in Christ's church. We need 
preachers committed to sola scriptura, the formal principle of the Reformation, the founding principle, Scripture alone defines truth from error, defines God from idols, defines Christ from Antichrist, defines gospel from heresy. He who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. We're not looking for dreams. We're not looking for new revelations. We're looking to faithfully preach the word in season and out of season as the Lord has commanded. Psalm 19, verse 7, the Lord says the law of the Lord is perfect. The Lord says the law of the Lord is perfect. That's not my personal opinion. That's God's truth. Years ago, I was witnessing to a man, and he kept saying, no, I want your opinion. I had my Bible in my hand, and I was reading from it. He said, no, I want your opinion on it. But he's asking me theological truths. He's asking me about God and heaven and hell. And so I'm giving him God's truth. And he finally reaches up, and he closes my Bible in my hand. He says, no, I want your opinion. And I said, well, my, my opinion is worthless. But if you want my opinion, my opinion is this. My opinion is worthless. And the Word of God is worth everything. And so hear the Word of God and you'll perish in your sins. Why do you want the opinion of a mere man about your eternal soul? No, we want the Word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, says God. I believe God. If you're a Christian, you believe God. The law of the Lord isn't, you know, mediocre. It isn't okay. It isn't merely useful. It's perfect, converting the soul. I believe God that the law of the Lord is perfect for the conversion of soul. The law of the Lord, the Word of God, now the law specifically, but then the Word of God in total, does not push sinners away from God. That's a common, unbiblical error of our world today, that if you declare the Word, whether as a friend over coffee, or as a preacher in the street, or even in church, if you declare the Word boldly, you know, you might push some people away from God. Now, one, that belittles the sovereignty of God. It makes man sovereign, not God. Two, that undermines the power of Scripture, the perfection of Scripture. It is perfectly powerful to convert the sinner. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I can't enlighten anyone's eyes as to the glory and holiness of God and the sinfulness of self and the magnificence of Christ and His cross. I don't have that power, but the Lord has vested that power in Holy Scripture as the same Holy Spirit who inspired and has preserved God's Word, empowers God's Word, illuminating the heart and mind. And so we preach the Word, we share the Word, we bring the Word, we teach the Word. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Hear me, all the church growth methodologies, they're grass, in fact they're weeds. I won't even be so kind. They're man's weeds. And, and you can puff up a big church. It's easy to build a big church. Just tell people what they want to hear. God loves you. God has a wonderful plan for your life. It's going to be okay. Have a donut. Weekly pep talks and songs that, that you know, are hip hop and you can sway to. 
no great theological depth in the pulpit or in the music, and you can get a good gathering unless they decide to go bowling. They figure out, you know, we could go bowling. We want to give them the Word because the Word is the revelation of God. Because the grass withers, the flower fades. This is the stuff of the world. We, we don't want to give psychological pep talks. We don't want to give sociological studies. We don't want to give tips for life. We want to give mankind a revelation of their God so they might know Him and fear Him and love Him and run to Him for forgiveness and mercy and for sanctification and equipping for the work of the ministry. The Word of our God stands forever. This world's entertainments, movies, television shows, music, web surfing, social media will not satisfy the needs of your heart, mind, and soul. This world's philosophies, great intellectual ponderings, and man-made religions will never satisfy the needs of your heart, mind, and soul. The answers are not found in this world. They're found in the Word of God and God Himself as revealed in His Word. Luther was tormented still. Day after day, he would go to confessional as a priest confessing to priests his sins ad nauseum. And finally, his fellow priests got sick of him. And they said, Luther, go away. He would leave the confessional and turn around and go back. Go away, Luther. Study the Word. And that's the best thing they could have told him. That was their Hail Mary. Only this time it wasn't a Hail Mary. It was... All hail the power of Scripture, but they didn't know what they were saying. And he went and studied the Word, and he found the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ as he studied Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for all those who believe. Jew first, also the Greek. For the just shall live by faith. Faith alone. Faith alone. That's what he found. That's how he got saved. Rome could not save him. Rome could not satisfy him because God was awakening his soul to the sinfulness of sin. And he knew that these these paltry sacraments could not redeem him, could not wash him. He could confess all day long to another man and be guilty still. Scripture alone. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Let that sear into your soul. If you want to get a tattoo, go to a heart surgeon, have them open your chest and tattoo that on your heart. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. Your confidence in God's Word cannot be high enough. Even we who believe technically everything I'm saying, we tend to practically undermine the power of Scripture. We, we tend to practically think if I'm just nice enough, if I, if I could just smile enough and sound positive enough and bake the perfect cookie, which of course is still very soft in the middle. If I could just do all that, they would get saved, right? Or they'd at least like me, so they'd like Jesus. They'd know Jesus likes them because I like them. The first thing they need to learn is not God loves you. It's that God is holy and God will cast you into hell unless you repent. That is where you most certainly will go. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of God, not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. How do you know? Right now, John 3.36, but he who has not believed is what? Already dead in sin and trespass. And the wrath of God abides upon him. That's John 3.36b. So you can't go around telling everybody, by the way, did Jesus go around telling everyone God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life? 
Did the apostles? The answer is no. The first portion of their message is summarized in one word, repent. Why? Because God is holy and you are not. And believe the gospel. Why? To be saved. Saved from what? A life of marginalization? A life of disillusionment? A life not fully realized? Be saved from something less than your best life now? To your best life now? No, be saved from the eternal just wrath of a holy God. We, we tend to forget what we're actually saying. Repent and believe the gospel that you might be saved. Even when we say, well, I was saved and such and such. What were you saved from? You were saved from the wrath of the Almighty. You were saved from the due penalty of sin. And so we need to found our faith, our truth, our ministry on the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. That's my confidence. Thus, we preach the Word in the streets. We preach the Word outside of abortion clinics. We preach the Word at parades. We preach the Word everywhere people are gathered. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. And wonderful conversations ensue. Yesterday, we were preaching the Word at the Beaverton Planned Parenthood. And wonderful conversations resulted. Men and women were under the Word of God. And the Word will not return void. It will accomplish what God has pleased. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. One of the ladies yesterday said, well, I don't believe in God. I don't believe the Bible. And I said, you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You're suppressing the God that you know, the truth of the God that you know and unrighteousness. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Ma'am, that is the truth. Your disbelief is not truth. And you can say, I don't believe in police officers. And I don't believe that's a siren. And I don't believe those are lights. And I don't believe there are judges or prisons. But if you get in your car and you go run someone down, the police are going to pull up behind you with their siren and their lights. Eventually they will pull you over and they'll take you in front of that judge and they'll cast you into that prison, none of which you believed in. Your unbelief is immaterial. And it's a suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, the truth that you know. Your unbelief is sin. It's sin. And you need to repent of that. And so faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.15, through chapter 4, verse 5. From childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. That's what the scriptures do. They make you wise for salvation through faith. Not works. Faith, not sacrament. Faith, not pope, not priest, not church. Faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16 all Scripture, all Scripture, verbal, plenary, inspiration, every word, the totality thereof, inspired by the Holy Spirit, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, literally theonoustos, God-breathed, and is profitable. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is thus profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If ever there was a sola scriptura verse, it's there. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. It makes you wise for salvation. And it makes you complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work because it's the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. 
And how am I to handle it? How are you to handle it? Well, it's profitable, universally profitable for doctrine, for reproof. That's like a a rebuke, a correction, and for instruction in righteousness. This is the way of righteousness. That's the way of sin. And it makes men and women complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at the, His appearing in kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Not the word fables. Far too many pulpits are filled with fables, not the word of God. In fact, in many churches, the pulpit is passe because we don't come with notes having studied and prepared from the word of God and we don't come with a Bible and set it on the pulpit and do the work of the preacher of God's word. No, we come with tips for life and poems and silly stories. And rated our movie clips to illustrate, supposedly, what we're teaching. Oh, that we would preach the word. Jesus, it says, is coming. He's coming. Again, chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and kingdom, preach the word. That's a strong charge. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. There's a season where the word of God is... It's not popular. Preaching anything but the Word of God is popular, or maybe sprinkling the Word of God through it. But is it a Scripture-driven message or a man-driven message? The tone of preaching, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. See, preaching is not open to definition. Doug Paget, an emergent heretic some years ago, wrote a book called Reimagining Preaching. And he called biblical preaching screeching. Screeching. Bringing God's Word authoritatively is screeching. What Doug Paget believes biblical preaching is, is getting chairs in a circle and having everyone say, I think and I feel. And the Bible may or may not be opened. That's not preaching at all. That's pondering. There's a difference. A radical difference. And so we preach the word, whether in season or out of season, with the aim of convincing, rebuking, and exhorting. It's an authoritative declaration of God's word with long suffering and teaching. For the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves social justice woke teachers. I mean, sorry, teachers. That's just the current example. That is the current example fashionable doctrine. That is what's on the menu today in apostate churches and churches that are going apostate. Woke social justice teaching in place of the pure teaching of God's Word. Verse 4, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Our sin nature, hear me, loves fables. We love them. Aesop's and all the rest of them. We love fables. Our sin nature hates God's truth. It loves fables. I mean, think of this. Dianetics. Are you kidding me? 
Some of the richest, most powerful people on the planet ascribe to L. Ron Hubbard's Dianetics as truth. Mormonism, the madness of Mormonism, that you, a mere man, are going to become a god. And you, a mere woman, good news, are going to become a perpetually pregnant goddess. And you're going to go populate a planet somewhere in this cosmos. Or maybe a multiverse cosmos. I don't know. They're open to it. That's madness. And yet they want to claim to be Christians. So the world is ready to believe just about anything. The world will you know, tie up their Nikes and put garbage sacks over their heads to catch a ride on the Hale-Bob comet because it sounded like a good idea at the time. No, it's mass suicide. They didn't catch a ride on any comet. They went directly to judgment. How tragic. The world is so crazy, they'll vote in a communist, thinking that this is going to create a utopia. That's the madness of sin. And that's, by the way, part of the whole woke social justice thing coming into the church. Communism. Coming into Christ's church. Communism is innately antichrist. Communism is innately atheistic. And yet it's coming to the church as if the two can have peace. This is madness. We love fables. Marxist utopia is a fable. Becoming a god and goddess because you were married in a Mormon temple and baptized for the dead is a fable. Dianetics is a fable. But they sit in the middle of Washington Square Mall. They they sit in the middle of Lloyd Center Mall with a booth and people rush up to it and they buy into it. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. John 10.35, the Lord Jesus said, Scripture cannot be broken. God's Word is inerrant. God's Word is preserved. God's Word is powerful. It cannot be broken. The Lord Jesus both taught and modeled sola scriptura in His ministry. Jesus was God in flesh. Everything He spoke was the Word of God. And yet He taught and modeled a ministry committed to the inscripturated Word. Thus saith the Lord, He would say again and again and quote Scripture. Would we do anything less? God in flesh condescended to use Scripture. Will we just pop off whatever comes to mind? I think, I feel. Or Freud said, I mean fraud, mispronounced it, sorry. Will we really do that? How audacious when God in flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord, modeled a ministry of Scripture. In Luke chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus answered him saying, It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. What a beautiful model. He not only modeled it, he taught it simultaneously. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. There it is, sola scriptura in a verse, modeled and taught. Luke 4.4, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Matthew 5, verse 17. Again, the Lord Jesus speaking. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. 
It is inspired. It is inerrant. It is preserved. That's Jesus' view of Scripture. And if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, that's your view of Scripture. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's preserved. Not one jot or tittle has passed away. Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. He, Jesus, answered and said to them, Have you not read... Have you not read? The expectation of our Lord Jesus Christ is that we will read the Word of God. Have you not read that He who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Not only does He expect us to read it, He expects us to believe it. Believe it. Have you not read that He who made them at the beginning made them male and female? That's a quote of Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24. He expects us to read it and believe it. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Uplifted by Jesus is the inspired, inerrant, and preserved Word of God, the authoritative Word of God that expects us to read and believe. Our worldview is built upon Genesis to Revelation. We don't pick and choose. We humble ourselves before God. Matthew 19, verse 6, So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Look to Matthew 22, verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures. Do you want to look silly? Neglect the Scriptures. Jesus publicly exposed their mistake and, and the cause of their mistake. You're mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures. I have people come to me all the time. It's, it's comical. I try not to laugh because I try to be, you know, compassionate. But they come to me and they have this assumed authority and this assumed revelation, right? They have this authority out of midair and a revelation to... And they come to me and they say, that's not right, this is right. On what authority? Well, their own personal authority. And from what source? Well, they're the source. (laughs) How audacious is that? This is my authority and my source of truth. And that's an act of humble submission to the God of truth, the God of the cosmos, the God who created everything, the God of all laws, moral, physical, logic, all of it. I've submitted myself unto Him. Thus, I can authoritatively declare the truth of God. But it's an audacious thing to just come on the authority of self, declaring your own truth that you created with those synapses often misfiring in your head. And so we, we want to be people of God's truth. People are committed to the truth. Lest we be silly, you are mistaken not knowing the Scriptures. We will make mistake after mistake after mistake. We'll make mistakes in judgment Mistakes in action, mistakes in speaking will we'll just be a mess if we don't know the Scriptures. You are mistaken not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given a marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Who spoke? God spoke. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying... I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's recorded in Exodus 3, verse 6. And Jesus said, God is speaking. Jesus upholds inspiration of Exodus. He goes on, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, his authoritative teaching of what? The Word of God. Sola Scriptura. 
Scripture alone. The Lord Jesus modeled and taught us the inspiration, inerrancy, preservation, power, and authority of God's Word and ministry. And when I say ministry, I don't mean just as a pastor. I mean every Christian. We're all ministers. Ministering to one another, iron sharpening iron, ministering in our communities to fellow believers, encouraging them in love and good works, and to the lost, encouraging them toward repentance and faith in the one true God and the only Savior, Jesus Christ. James chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We are a word-driven people. I read earlier the quote from Dr. Nichols talking about one of the effects of the Reformation was to remove the altar from the center of the church and to place the pulpit with the Word of God on it in the center of the church. We are a Word-driven people because the Word is the revelation of God. It makes us wise for salvation. It makes us complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lay aside the filthiness and overflow of wickedness, says, says James 1.21, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. So once it's been implanted in us and it's saved us, it's brought us to a position of repentance and faith in Christ. We don't then neglect it and go our merry way. No, then we begin to walk in the light of the word. Not hearers only, but doers of the word lest we be deceived. 1 Peter 1, verse 23, Having been born of God, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. How does one get born again? It is a work of the Spirit of God, but God condescends in the natural world to use His word. And so, how will they hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God. Some people think they were born again because they were told they were born again. The word of God was not brought to bear upon their heart and mind. They never learned the beginning of knowledge, the fear of God. They never had a God-driven, spirit-empowered experience of repentance and a confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. They were told to pray this prayer, and after they prayed the prayer, they were told, you're saved, don't ever doubt it. But they never touched first base. They never touched second, third. They never really got into the game. It was not a word-driven experience. It was not this power of God. And by the way, that's a, that's a form of evangelical popism. We as evangelicals say, pray this prayer. Okay, you prayed the prayer I led you through. Now, don't you ever doubt your salvation? That's like a priest saying, uh, say your Hail Marys. Boom, you're done. You're good. It's like the Pope saying, give me the cash. And uh, indulgence... Your dead relative will be rescued out of purgatory. He's all good. That's putting the power in a man. There's no man that can pronounce you saved. It's God who pronounces you saved. And he uses the word of God to bring you to that saving relationship. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God. We had this faith healer come last summer to our city and he walked through our city stretching legs. In Jesus' name. Oh, you look like your back hurts. Here, sit down. It's because your legs are different lengths. I mean, this is an old con. Old, old con. And this con artist in Jesus' name came to our city, had people sit down, and he lengthened legs. 
And without speaking of sin, without speaking of repentance, without speaking of the necessity to believe upon Christ and Christ alone, who Jesus was, fully God, fully man, crucified, buried, resurrected on the third day, conquering sin and death, without speaking any of the essential truths, they would then say, pray this prayer with me. They'd pray a quick prayer. He'd pronounce them saved. That was that. Praise God, another soul saved today. Wonderfully effective evangelist, right? And people walk away kind of mystified and, and whatnot. The, the man is a heretic. He has a false gospel. And he's a charlatan. He's not healing anyone. That, that's an old trick. And people have used it for just straight up cash for centuries. He's using it in Jesus' name. But he comes without the word of God. He comes out without the gospel of God. And he pronounces people saved. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you, therefore laying aside all malice, all guile, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil, speaking as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. If the sovereign grace of God has moved upon you through the ministry of the word of God, and you have been born again, then you're to lay aside all malice and other sin, and you're to desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow. What saved you is what grows you. What saved you is what sanctifies you. What you win them with is often said, you've got to keep them with. If we win folks with a, with a sign outside that says, win this car, and has a car on ramps pointed up to heaven, right? As if you, you can get in the car and it'll take you to heaven. That's, that's our gospel here. Then you've got, to, you've got to keep winning them with lottery, lottery tickets. And that's what some churches do. In California, we drove by, drove by every Sunday a church, you should drive by these churches, that had a car in the parking lot up on ramps, pointed up to heaven, and a sign said, win this car. And every time you went to church there, you get a ticket as you go in. And at the end of the year, you know, you have a bunch of tickets, and somebody won the car. And they drive away, probably didn't ever come back, um, in the BMW. What a, what a fantastic deal, right? No, no, not at all. What you win them with, you've got you to keep them with. We don't want to win people with win this car or fabulous coffee here or amazing donuts or rockin' music. We don't want to do that. We want the Lord to win them. What do we do when we preach the word? We're preaching the revelation of God. So if they come, what do they come for? They've come for the God of the revelation. They've come for God. I didn't win them. God won them and God will keep them. And they want more of the revelation of God because that's how they started with the revelation of God and the beginning of knowledge, the fear of God, and then the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, repentance, the fruit thereof, repentance and faith and the love of God, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love foremost to God. Now they love God and they want more of God. They don't have to be propped up in the pew because they're no longer a dead carcass. They sit up straight and they listen. And if they find themselves falling asleep, they're not happy about it. It's not like, oh, that was a good sermon. I was a really good nap. No, they want to be awake. They want to be awake for the word of God. I'm not speaking to anyone if you happen to be falling asleep. <laughs> but I bet you're awake now. 
But they want the Word of God. I know what it is to sit in a pew. I've, been, I've done it a few times. And sometimes the flesh gets weak. But you know what? I want to be awake. And so I'll poke myself. I'll, I'll stand up and, in the back. I'll do whatever I've got to do without calling attention to myself. Because I want to be under the Word of God. I want to hear it. That's why I'm there. Because I want to know God and love God and be equipped to make God known that others would know Him and love Him. And so if we've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but the incorruptible through the Word of God, we're to continue as newborn babes to desire the pure milk of the Word of God. And we will. We will. We don't prop up carcasses. Those that God has made alive have an appetite. They want more of God. They want more of the revelation of God because that's how God draws us to Himself and makes Himself known to us. Well, much more can be said about Scripture alone. That is a pregnant point, meaning that point had many children. <laughs> and we've gotten to know some of them. So the formal principle, the foundation of the five solas, the foundation of the five pillars of the Reformation is Scripture alone, sola scriptura. Next, grace alone. Grace alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We hear that verse, and we hear the word grace, and we think about grace, and we often think of God in yonder heaven having a really chummy feeling in His heart towards sinners. God and yonder heaven having a really nice thought in his head regarding sinners. But it's so much more than that. Grace is, yes, God setting his love on particular sinners for their redemption. But it is a salvific love. It is a redeeming love. It is a saving love. It is the love of a father for a sinner that he's going to make a child. Of God. It is sovereign grace, not a mere feeling, not a mere thought, but power. Power. The power to save. And so, by His grace, is not just God was kind enough, God felt kind, God thought kind thoughts, it's that God acted with power to redeem us. Freely by His grace, through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, says Romans 3, 24. Consider with me Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 11, and you'll see more fully what I'm speaking of in this grace alone. No merit of man, no power of man, not your power, not your effort, not your abilities, but the grace of God is what saves. The power of God is what saves. Dead men have no power. Dead men have no power. If you had a dead dog and you thought nice thoughts about the dog, you felt nice feelings about the dog, and you made the dog's favorite dish and set it out there, and you called to the dog all day long, the dog would never come because the dog is dead. Dear ones, in our sin, we are dead we need more than a nice feeling or a nice thought or even a choice meal. 
We need power to regenerate the dead, to revive the dead. And that's what we find in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, the sovereign grace of God at work. Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. He has made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known the dispensation of the fullness of the times that He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. What we just read there is called theologically monergism. It's not synergism. It's not God feeling a nice feeling of grace, thinking a nice thought of grace, and calling us to Himself, and we then cooperatively come because he seemed like a nice God. No, it's all of God's doing. It's what God is monergistically doing, not what we are synergistically cooperating with. It's all Godward according to the riches of his grace. And then we get to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look there. Ephesians 2. And you, he made alive. You, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others, but God. Monergism, but God. Sovereign grace, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of your own spirituality and wisdom to choose Jesus. That's not what it says. He raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Not a kind thought. Kind, sovereign grace that actively regenerated us, that actively saved us, that actively raised us from the dead. Verse 8, For by grace, this grace, sovereign grace, the power of grace, 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You didn't supply the faith and God did the rest. God raised you from the dead and gifted you the faith. Monergism. It's all of God, all for God's glory. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship. Not synergism. We are His workmanship. Monergism. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works come after sovereign grace and the gift of faith. Good works are the fruit of God's grace and genuine saving faith. Good works don't save us. Good works actually will damn us if we mix them with our faith. If we mix faith in Jesus with faith in our works, Roman Catholic sacraments or any other, then Galatians 5.4 says, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. That's why it's grace alone. Hear me. Rome says yes to grace. Rome says yes to faith. Certainly Rome says yes to Jesus, but never alone. It's grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as the Scriptures alone declare. These are the pillars of the Reformation that I don't have the time to preach in totality today. So we have two beautiful pillars. Scripture alone and grace alone. And there are three to come. And Christ alone is the heart of it all. Oh, come back next week and we'll celebrate Christ alone being Savior. Let's pray.